No surprise, we are going to be talking about Jesus, and we find ourselves talking about him in the 8th chapter of Romans, and currently as we go verse by verse through the book of Romans, or what we call our road through Romans, we come to verse 19 in the text. And we'll be covering all the way down to verse 25. It's like a record for me at the moment, isn't it? But the question we had, or we have right now, as you look through this text, and I hope you are reading it throughout the week, just so you can reflect on it as you listen on a Sunday morning. What are all these groanings about? Because we see groanings coming from three, three major parties that Paul brings up in this text. Groanings from creation, which we're going to be talking about today, and groanings from believers. And next week we'll be going and talking about groanings from the Holy Spirit himself. So what are all those groanings about, we would ask when you talk about, when you hear the word groanings, what comes to mind? When, when you look back on your life, because groanings really can be quite a broad definition, looking at different contexts. Um, when we think of loved ones passing away, there's groanings. When we think of pain, we think of groanings. When we think of just all sorts of suffering, there's like groanings. And, and this is what Groanings, when you look at the Greek word, is talking about sighings and, and just lamenting and whatever synonym you want to put in there. What comes to mind? I thought about that this week and when I think about the, like the most, I don't know, the most monumental situation in my life that involved groaning, not necessarily outward actually. I couldn't do this outward groaning when I think about this situation because I think about the, um, my, my wife um, delivering my children. I just think of that as groaning and the most amount of groaning I've done. And you might think, what? Come on, are you, are you, you're stepping on dangerous ground here, Tim. This is all to do with the woman when we're talking about childbearing, okay? Um, but I don't know. If you're a man in this room and you've had children, and you've been there while your wife has had the children, because I know there's quite a few stories where men aren't, uh, are unable to be there. It's, it is quite burdensome for the man as well. All right? I, I will say this from the outset, though. We definitely don't go through as much pain as the lady, okay? I'm just putting it out there. Definitely not. But there is pain for the man, okay? To see your wife going through that anguish and that pain. It is hard on a man to see that because you can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about it. Now, I get criticized a lot, especially when Griff was born because, you know, the meal came in for Kerry. There was quite a few hours in her labor and there's no way she was in the mood for eating. And so I thought, I can't allow that to go to waste. And I know, I have no idea how long I'm going to be in here. And I don't 
to leave to go for a meal because, you know, that would be just be rude. So I thought I'd not waste a meal and, and eat it while she was, you know, having her labour pains. I do get criticised for that. But even for a man, you know, again, if you're, you're a man in this room and you haven't had children yet, number one advice is make sure you get your grip right. Because that can be quite painful. Because if you put your finger up there or your, or your wrist or your hand in an awkward position and she grabs it, okay, then you can't do much about it. You can't really say, hey, can we just do a different grip here? You, you can't do that, you know. So you've got to make sure that's right because that can be a lot of painful for you. That can be a lot of pain. I won't say, again, I won't say as much pain as that lady is going through, but... There's pain. There's a lot of groaning. But it's more inward. It's more inward because if we let our groans out, oh my goodness, that would just be insulting. That would be a huge insult for the wife going through her groaning. You can't say a word. you just got to shut up. Good advice though, men, too, is just make sure both hands are not free. Have one with gas, one with water. You're available. Okay? That way, no gripping. You don't have to go through that harm at all. But what comes to your mind? What are all these groanings about when we think about our lives? The interesting thing here in this text is that, or are we talking about mankind? Because look, look at verse A19. Verse 19. It says, for the earnest expectation, and you could say for the groaning, and later on Paul does use groaning, it is a different word, but this is a word used where there is a, an anxious expectation. There, there is deep anxiety. In fact, when you look at that Greek word, it's, it's used when you're, 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 you're on the, your tippy toes and you're looking over and you have that that earnest expectation, that expectation that, that brings on all this anxiousness and, and all this, this grief and you are looking ahead to hope. But who's it for? In verse 19, every single version that you have with you, I'm sure it says creation. The creation. It's the earnest expectation of the creation to straight away what is the creation? Well, think about it. What's all the things that God has created? We know it's everything, right? So let's go into categories. God created the angels. Could this be talking about angels? Angels having that earnest expectation? A part of me says, don't, I don't think so. Because does it get any better for angels? No. It doesn't. What about the fallen angels, who we call the demons? They were created. Do they, they have the earnest expectation that eagerly awaits, that they're eagerly awaiting? Well, I don't think so. They actually know where they're going. They actually know what happens. They actually know that they do lose. They know that they will be. But it has been ordained, it has been commanded by God, 
that there's no second chances for them. There's no second chances for demons. They actually can't repent. It's impossible for a demon to repent. They know. Is it talking about them? No. They're not hoping for what Paul's talking about in this. Is it believers then? Well, first of all, before we know it can't be believers. Why? Because Paul separately draws out believers in verse 23. Non-believers? Just humanity in general? No, I don't think so either. Because, well, are they, do they have this expectation? If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, then you're not even thinking about heavenly things. And also, also, we're getting to the next verse, verse 20. The creature, the creation, it was subject to vanity, not willingly. Humankind willingly subjected himself to that. What's left? Nature? Animals? We could say probably living and non-living things. Which brings to the question, okay, let's take for instance the trees. Do they have that expectation? Do they have an earnest expectation? What's Paul trying to get here? And I think he's actually using imagery. I think he's actually using a poetic technique which we call personification. Personification is where we associate non-living things into behaving or describing them behaving like a living thing. We're all familiar with this because I think I have it. I think I might just... change my view. We're all familiar with this because surely you've read this before. Surely you've read Hey Diddle Diddle, The Cat and the Fiddle. Does anyone not know of that nursery rhyme? Good. All right. Just personification. The cow jumped over the moon. Can a cow literally jump over a moon? Obviously not. It's personification. The little dog laughed. Do dogs laugh? Maybe some will say yes, but I don't think so. Um, to see such fun. And the dish, well, here's a plain personification right now. The dish ran away with the spoon. Is Paul using personification here? I actually, I actually think he is. Is this the only place in Scripture where personification is used? Actually, no. You might be interested to know there's actually... Old Testament scriptures. Um, if you're interested in that, do your homework. Look up personification in the Old Testament. Isaiah. Isaiah writes quite a lot of 
uh, that kind of poetic technique, where this it actually describes the same thing that Paul's writing about. The, the nature, the things in the earth, the creation, is actually moaning and, and groaning with mankind. Which brings us to a conclusion that, well, mankind is not the only thing that's going to be made new. Was it made new in the start? Was it perfect in the start? Yes. Just read Genesis chapter 1 again. Remember, everything that God made was good. It was very good. But what are they waiting for? Well, the same thing we're waiting for. Paul puts it as the revealing, some versions might say manifestation, of the sons of God. So that sons of God could just be a term we use for the children of God. The revealing of the children of God. What did, we, what did Paul bring up last week in the previous verses? He's bringing up our glorification where we are, are, are made glorified. The revealing of the sons of God is that time where, hey, <laughs> absolutely everything will be made new. Um, we think of John in Revelation. A new heaven and a new earth. New earth will be the new heaven. Are you aware that the Jews would have been made aware of this too? Because this new earth is actually something that was prophesied in the Old Testament as well. Um, it's found in Isaiah 65. Behold, the Lord says, I create a new heavens and a new earth. So the Jews were aware of this. And the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Which brings an interesting question. What will we remember when we're up there? Will we remember each other? What former things will we not remember when we have our glorified bodies? Verse 18, but be ye glad and rejoice forever. In that which I create for, behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. So this to me is relating Jerusalem where, you know, the temple worshipping Jesus, that is the place. Wow, the new Jerusalem, we're going to be there. Verse 19, now we rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Very, very um, similar to John writing in Revelation, isn't it? No more, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. Isaiah wrote about it as well. Why are they eagerly awaiting it? Why are we awaiting it? Why is creation eagerly awaiting with this earnest expectation? Well, we know the story, don't we? In case you don't, Genesis 3, for the creation was subjected to futility. Notice it was subjected to futility. And notice also, not 
willingly. Not willingly. Now, it's Adam and Eve's fault, right, that creation was subjected to futility. But that was willing. They actually disobeyed. Did creation, did the animals get a say in it? Everything that was grown, trees, bushes, whatever, flowers, plants, fruit, that was all perfect. No rotting, no weeds, no nothing like that. No dead bark. Whatever problems we have with creations in our gardens. They did not get a say. Those things did not get a say. Again, another reason I'm thinking Paul's talking about the actual creation. Also remember last week we covered some verses that's mentioned in Revelation about there being actual nature in heaven. I think it was, what is it, 12 of every kind of fruit tree. So they were subjected to futility. If you're wondering, futility, um, my version here says vanity. Um, really, when you look at the Greek word, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just an inability to reach its purpose. It's aimlessness. It's just purposelessness, <laughs> if that's a word. But also, it's because of him who subjected it in hope. And your version probably has a capital H for him. It's pretty obvious that that him is talking about God. God actually made it happen. He had to make it happen. For him to be a holy God, we're talking about, oh, I can't remember, um, probably in Romans chapter 1, he can't not punish sin. Okay, that's a double negative, I know. He can't not punish sin because he's a holy God. He can't tolerate it. It has, to, it has to be dealt with. And for that one rule, only one, to be broken, that caused a whole curse to be put on the earth. We call it the fallen world or the event we call the fall, the fall of man. So Genesis chapter 3, just to remind you, okay, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Again, there's only one rule. One rule, that's all they had. One law. Um, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field, so you're still going to benefit from it, but it's not going to be perfect. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Could God say, nah, I'll just, I'll just ignore that little rule you broke, Adam and Eve? He couldn't, because he's a holy God. A holy God cannot accept or leave sin unpunished. 
<clears throat> well, um, he suggested in, in hope, there is hope, right? It's hope because right, the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. It will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So now Paul is relating creation, nature, into what's going to happen to us. So will creation be brought back into what it was from the start, however long that lasted? We don't know exactly how long it took for Adam and Eve to sin, but is it going to be returned to that status, that point? Yes. And the language that Paul uses, the glorious liberty, complete liberty, glorious liberty of the children of God. This is where we will be completely free from this curse, completely free from any power, any external force of sin. And the effects of that sin. But this says this, this. This verse is very interesting in a way of how we uh, uh, approach on how we treat the earth, is it not? Because my question here is, okay, if sorry, if creation really notice it's the same bondage of corruption, the same bondage of sin that we're under. Paul relates that to creation. Paul relates that to the earth. You ever thought about that? They're under the same curse as we are. And here we are. Well, the question is, how should we view environmentalism? Because here we are, trying to save the earth. We're spending billions, probably even trillions of dollars, trying to save this planet when we know, firstly, it's corrupt. That's nature, not the government. Nature we're talking about. Stay on focus, Peter. But in the end, we know it's just going to be destroyed. What should our view of environmentalism be? Because we say, for the sake of the environment, we need to do this. It's just, just, it's just something that I thought about this week. You know, I'm just wondering, I don't know, should we be spending billions of dollars trying to get ourselves down to zero carbon emissions or should we spending those billions of dollars on people, on relieving poverty, for instance, things that actually matter? What, what should be our, our view of that? So something for you maybe to have a discussion with someone this week. Again, this earth will be replaced. Um, does that mean though, also, should we, well, should we care about littering? And I'm saying, well, I guess, yes, we should. Because we're still told to be good stewards of the creation, of our thing. And, and really, littering does affect us. 
And we might not even know how much effect it has on us. And I'm just, just not saying, like, hygienically, even probably, I wouldn't say, I'd say emotionally, mentally. I wonder, you know, how much you, as a, like, having a, 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 here's proof in the pudding. How much do you get affected by having a, a messy household? I know that could be varying differences, but really? Do you, do, you feel, do you feel like right when there's maybe you have all this rubbish everywhere? So if you relate that to, let's just say, a, a room in your household, even um, let's just go outside, the park. Do you, feel, do you feel blessed and joyful if you go to a park and there's all rubbish everywhere? I'm, I'm just wondering. I'm thinking out loud here. I might be getting off topic, but how much does that affect us mentally? Maybe God knows it all along. Hey, <laughs> it's good for you. Take care of the environment around you. But I don't know. It comes an issue when we decide to spend money on things rather than others. It's priorities. So first for 22, um, oh, we're bringing up childbearing again. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul brings up this illustration of relating the groans to childbearing. Could it be because with childbearing, there is a hope? It's like you know the outcome, and the outcome is life, new life, right? So you're willing to go through that pain and those groans and that suffering because of the joy it brings, or the hope it brings, the outcome it gets. Is that what Paul's trying to say here? There's a hint that it does, because we go on to um, the hope that we have. First of all, Paul says, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit? And there's not many versions, actually, that got away with this. First fruits of the Spirit. Because you might be saying, what? What's, what, are, what in the world are the first fruits of the Spirit? If you're familiar with your Bible, you might be familiar with the, the, the offering or the first fruits offering. And pretty much, just, just put it plainly, is, um, is when you know, a farmer grew something, uh, he would get the first crop. You would call that, you'd call that the first fruits. He would, he would um, harvest it, bring it out, and that would actually be a sign that, of how the rest of the harvest would go. And then he would go on to offer that. But how does that relate to us? Best version, actually, I saw. Uh, no, well, the best version I saw uh, out there, and I didn't include it for a reason, was the New Living Translation. Uh, firstly, it didn't fit on the page. Okay, they added some stuff to it, um, but, uh, and that's why I didn't include it. But a good word is foretaste. A foretaste. We know what a foretaste is, right? Just like the first fruits of the harvest was a foretaste of what was to come. Well, notice, we who have a foretaste of what is to come. 
do we have a foretaste of what is to come? Well, we could say yes, because you might not feel like it, by the way. But we, we are yes, because we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And that Spirit of God enables us just to think. Even It starts with thinking of about heavenly things. I still go back to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. You know, you're a teacher of the Word of God, but you can't even think about these things because you're not born again. You don't have the Spirit of God in you, even though obviously Nicodemus didn't understand it at that time. But we do now as we go through Romans. We, are, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is just a taste of what is to come, to really experience the love of God in us. But even we ourselves, we groan. We groan. Some more than others, right? I'm sure if you're older than me, you're groaning more than me. Probably more every day. I have evidence that in my own life. Compared to when I was a teenager, compared to when you were a teenager, you're groaning more and more each day. And it's not just because of your body. It's not just because, hey, this is deteriorating and you're getting more and more uh, frail as you go. But think about your life. Think about the experiences that you have as you go on. Maybe you, maybe you are a person in this room that you're the only surviving relative, the only surviving sibling maybe. There's groans that goes with those experiences, right? So, as I said before, we just can't relate these groanings just to one particular area in our lives. It's, it's, it's a whole broad spectrum of things that happen to us, and it's just a result of this fallen world. It's just a result of living with this curse that we have been subjected to. But we're eagerly waiting. Again, there's hope. We're eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now stop right there. You, should, you could probably say, uh, Tim, two weeks ago you just said in the verse 16, you just said we're already adopted. But now you're saying we're waiting for the adoption? Which one is it? And it's both. Notice if you look at verse 16, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit. Okay? Um, and sorry, verse 15 rather. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. So yes, we have been adopted into God's family. But have we received everything that comes with that adoption. We know it's there. And we're talking about the inheritance. Part of that inheritance is a, a glorified body, a body that is just like Jesus. And it gives us hints there. It's the redemption of our body. It's talking about our new state. 
the state where, yes, we have a new spirit and a new heart in us, but we still have this, these things that aren't renewed, these things that aren't. They're still, they're still cursed with this fallen world. Hence why we're still praying for people that has cancer and, and that's not going to go away until everything is made new. So that's what it's talking about. If we're waiting for that ultimate revealing of the sons of God. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Because who hopes for what they already have? No one, right? If you have it, there's no hope. You don't need to hope for it because you have it. Obviously, we're not there yet. We're waiting for that time where we will be given a glorified body. But if you do have that hope, then we end on verse 25 and saying, probably you all memorize this as children, but if we hope for what we see not or for what we do not see, so I'm so used to King James Version of what I memorized when I was a kid, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We're waiting for it. This is what we're waiting for. This is the hope that we have. First of all, do you have this hope? Because once again, I'll proclaim, Jesus is the hope. Jesus is our hope. Do you have it? Do you want it? And if you already do have it, do you need to be reminded of it? I did see how many faces came in this room and, and they weren't the most happy faces, which is fair enough. We're living in a world that's messed up right now, more messed up than ever, and it's going to, be, and it's going to keep on getting more messed up as we live on. It's not going to get any better. But do you need just a reminder of the hope? Maybe you need to reflect on this verse this week. Colossians 1.27. Remember, to them, you, God has chosen to make known. You're in this room for a reason. Among the Gentiles, because remember, this wasn't always revealed to everyone. It started off with the Jews. And God made a time where he chose to reveal it to everyone. And we're still in that age. God's revealing it to the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which it is Christ in you. Who is Christ? The hope of glory. The hope of glory. Jesus Christ. Let's thank God for Jesus right now. Heavenly Father, we... We know words are really, when we think of our appreciation, our gratefulness for who you are and, and what you've done for us, we know words are merely not enough. And we really it comes to a time where we can't even express fully our appreciation. But Father, we do thank you once again for what a loving 
and gracious Father you are in giving us hope. You don't just leave us down here to work things out for ourselves. You counsel us. You guide us. You comfort us. You encourage us. And you use your people to do that as well. And so just, we just want to commit ourselves to you as we just work our way through this life, experiencing the ups as well as the downs, knowing that it will not be made perfect until the day that only you know. We look forward to it with an eager anticipation. We just thank you once again for that hope that we do have, knowing that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.